Good morning. It's good to be with you again here today. I, uh, I've been here, and I think this is actually the second Reformation Sunday in a row I've preached. Um, and I, yeah, I need to sh- start shaving my head like Martin Luther had his, his hair shaved, I think, if this continues to be a tradition. But it's a privilege to do so. I'm glad to be here to bring the word to you this morning. Uh, for those of you who are, don't know me, I am a member of the church. Um, my name is Adam Osier. I serve as the dean of our, our Free Lutheran Bible College down in Plymouth. Uh, and Grace, while we have been in the cities, has been our home for a long time. So, privileged to be a part of this family. Our scripture today is found in the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 14 and reading through the end of the chapter, verse 17. Reading in Jesus' name, Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Father in heaven, these are your words. Use them. Speak to us now, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. There is an unknown, uh, a hymn of unknown origin. We don't know who wrote it exactly, but it is in our hymnal here at church. It says this, I look not back. God knows the fruitless efforts, the wasted hours, the sinning, the regrets, Then he goes on to say, I look not round me, then would fears assail me. So wild the tumult of earth's restless seas, so dark the world, so filled with woe and evil, so vain the hope of comfort and of ease. And then he says, I look not inward, for that would make me wretched, for I have naught on which to stay my trust. Nothing I see save failures and shortcomings and weak endeavors crumbling into dust. Well, we don't know who penned this poem. I think if we're honest, anyone could have written this poem. It's themes of the utter inability to to conquer our own failures, uh, to, to hope in this chaotic and divisive and broken world. That resonates with us, doesn't it? Martin Luther was a good example of somebody who lived in the reality of this poem. We know him as the reformer of reformers, a man who stood for what is right, a man who Time magazine listed, I believe, as the third most influential person of the millennium, from 1,000 to 2,000. But we sometimes forget that he was a man who also knew his own heart. He was a man who recognized his fruitless efforts, his sinning, his regrets. In fact, As an Augustinian monk, he so obsessed over his inadequacy and failure and sin that that he was plagued by his guilt so much that he would go to his confessor uh, and he would confess his sin so much that he drove his confessor crazy and said, and the confessor said to him, why don't you go and come back when you actually have something to confess? So where do you turn as a religious fellow to find solace in your guilt? Where do you turn? Turn to your church, right? 
But what did he find there? He found that, that, as the line said in the hymn, the tumult, the darkness, the woe, the evil. He found the hypocrisy of an institution that had abandoned its first love. An institution that had become more interested in worldly wealth than treasure in heaven. An institution willing to fleece the people that they were called to shepherd just to make a buck. So when Luther heard the words of the 1517 version of the health and wealth preacher, Johann Tetzel, when he heard him say that the moment the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, he knew he needed to act. But where would he turn? If he couldn't fix the failure within by himself, and the spiritual authorities in his life had veered from the truth without, to whom or what could he appeal for righteousness? Now, I'm skipping a huge swath of history here, but I'm just going to tell you. He turned to the Word of God. He turned to that guide of truth that is God's Word and God's Word alone. Luther hadn't discovered anything new. It was was new to him maybe, but it wasn't new to the world. In fact, this is the very same message that Paul preaches here in our text. It's the very same message that Paul, as he is, uh, well, as we say in North Dakota sometimes, fixing to die. He's getting ready to go. He's getting ready. He knows he's in prison. He knows he's not getting out. And he's looking to Timothy, his son in the faith. He's looking to this young man who is carrying that torch of the word. And he calls out to him and he says this. He says, Timothy, bad things are coming, man. People are going to sin. They're going to be lovers of self. They're going to be lovers of money, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, da-da-da-da-da, and then always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. So as a seasoned apostle, speaking to a young pastor, what's Paul's advice to Timothy? If he can't look inward and he can't look outward, the, the hymn tells us to look up into the face of Jesus and Jesus alone. And where do we find that Savior? We find him in the word. We look to his word. Paul spells out four effects of this word of God that it has on those who learn it. These reasons were true for Timothy. They were true for Luther. These effects are true for us here today. And the first effect that scripture has on us is this. It's that the word anchors us. Is that what I put on the, on the slide? This is always intimidating. Maybe I said, yes, good. I said, I said anchors. Always scares me when you, Mary Jo, you ask for it so soon, right? You're like Tuesday. What? What? Are, and I get, I, you know, I shoot for it. And here I am. So the word anchors us. The word anchors us. In this hymn quoted earlier, the picture here is of this life compared with a wild tumult of Earth's restless seas. The pictures of this ship being tossed around, unable to control where it's going, because it has no anchor. In the ever-changing morality of society. God's word gives us a grounding in the chaos. It anchors us in unchanging and absolute truth. Paul tells this to Timothy when he says in verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. The word translated continue is actually that same word uh, in the original language that Jesus would have said when he says abide in me. It's the same word, continue or abide in me. That picture of abiding is this picture of of continuing unwavering. 
despite the fluidity of morality going on around Timothy, despite the sin, despite everything else, he says, continue in that word. Be anchored in that word. Paul knew that in, in the weakness that we have as human beings, the tendency that we have is to go the path of least resistance. Whatever is easier, let's go that way. Whichever is more comfortable, let's head in that direction. It, it would be easy for Timothy, as this young pastor in a very secular society, to do the exact same thing, to deny God's truth and absolute truth in his will, the word of God. He would be tempted, I think, to, to do what many preachers are doing today, which is to preach a gospel and, and to cling to a gospel that's really no gospel at all. Paul predicts this cultural pressure in those verses that I just have read to you just a minute ago. People will be lovers of self and all da-da-da-da-da, right? He knows that this is coming, and he says, Timothy, be anchored. Continue in what you have known and have firmly believed. After telling Timothy to continue, he says something that's easy to kind of read over, I think. It's something that we can, can as we're reading through Scripture, we do this a lot, right, as we can quickly skip over pieces that are, uh, you know, we consider as to be mundane or just kind of, you know, added words. But he says to Timothy, remember from whom, and that word there is plural, that from whom is plural, remember from whom you have learned it. Who had Timothy learned that word from? All goes all the way back, and at the beginning of the letter, he, he tells us actually. He says that Timothy's grandma, who is probably a Jewish woman living in what is modern-day Turkey, uh, had taught him the word. She was a believer. She had faith. He says, your mother, Eunice, she also had faith. What you have learned from them, he said, continue in that. Remember them. Remember. And he says, Paul, Paul then goes on to say in the same chapter, he says, and you've learned it from me too. This was nothing new for Timothy. It was instilled from him from the early age. In fact, the first part of verse 15 says that from childhood he had learned these sacred writings. That childhood goes back to his mom and his grandma, and you can picture that little event, right, where, where maybe, you know, grandma says, Timothy, hop up here, sit on my lap. We'll read some together. Let me tell you a story about Jesus, Timothy. And that word from childhood, literally, it's the word that means nursing infant. Somebody, so, so it's not just that Timothy learned it like in sixth grade when he got, you know, got, you know, got ready to go into confirmation. This is from the time that he was nursing, from his mother, he was learning these things. That's how powerful the Word of God is. Rembrandt, the famous artist, he paints a number of biblical scenes, and I, I really appreciate his uh, portrayal of various scenes of Scripture. But this one is kind of interesting. He has Timothy standing next to his grandma. And she's holding open this scroll, and she's teaching him. There's a lesson in this that we have to remember here today as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles and older siblings, Sunday school teachers. None of them should be here right now, by the way. They should be in Sunday school. But we have to remember that the younger generation must know the anchor of this Word of God in order to cling to it. As we see in Timothy's case, that, that word took root early on. He learned the word. And as a result, he could remain in it and firmly believe its truth. 
We who know the word need to be faithful in passing that word down. Though our efforts seem insignificant, sometimes you think, well, if I read the Bible to a baby, is that really going to do anything? Sometimes it seems insignificant, but God doesn't see it that way. In fact, it's the normal means that God uses to pass down his truth. Older generations will teach the younger. Though cultural shifts of the day seek to separate and divide us as generations from the older and younger generations, we can't let that happen. We need the word of God to saturate our hearts from infancy forward. As it saturates our hearts, the word has that anchoring effect that protects us from being a rudderless ship on a raging sea. But not only does Paul speak to the word's ability to anchor us, but when we're anchored in that word, we find that that word saves us. That word saves us because it points us to Jesus. It says in verse 15, that those sacred writings that Timothy had been learning from childhood are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, contrary to what this might sound like, this idea of becoming um, wise to salvation does not imply that salvation is available only to a certain subset of individuals able to cognitively receive it. Okay, That's not what this is saying. He's saying that salvation comes as the word is proclaimed. It itself does the saving. It itself does the wisening to salvation. The word is that which is able to do this. True wisdom is trusting Christ's saving work on our behalf. And that comes through the word of the gospel, the good news. The word saves us because it proclaims a promise. It proclaims a good message. Literally, that's what gospel means. And when we hear that good message, what is the good message? It's that our sins are forgiven. It's that we no longer have to worry about whether or not we stand right before a holy God. We hear this message that Christ died for sinners. That was the battle cry, was it not, of the Reformation? That Christ alone? And where do we hear about Christ alone? We hear it through Scripture. That's the only place. We're not going to find the gospel by looking at the stars. We can tell looking at the stars or the trees or or the human complexity that we are biologically. We can determine, yeah, there probably is a God, but we do not hear the message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ except for in the word proclaimed. We have to look to Christ. It's not something we do to look to Christ. It's something we hear. As others have said, it's not a command to do, but it's a promise that all is done. It works in the hearer a confidence in Christ's ability to save. He is the object of the Christian's faith, and that object is solid and firm. This was the message that Paul gave Timothy to proclaim. It was the good message that destroyed Martin Luther's false religion on which he was trying to establish his own righteousness. When Luther heard and he understood the words of Romans 1.17, that, that in the gospel righteousness comes from God, is re, the, the righteousness, excuse me, that comes from God is revealed, it erased this mindset that, that this legalistic ritual that he had to go through would save him. It, it erased that mindset that he was going to have to do it on his own. The weight of guilt and shame, the, the, uh, the, the running on the treadmill, if you will, of good works, was pride from him. And that realization that Christ alone saves 
that righteousness alone comes as a gift of God through faith. That fueled the Reformation. There's a freedom. There's a joy in this truth. Despite the darkness of this world, the guilt of our past sins, the Word proclaims a message that brings light and frees the captive. It saves us from the punishment that our sins deserve. But not only does it save us, and then then it's over, the Word also instructs us. The Word instructs us. As we read in verse 16, we see that this Word can instruct us because the words are God's Word. In that verse, Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God. This describes the doctrine that we sometimes call the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. It's the teaching that God's Word isn't some man-made document with with little grounding in, in anything other than their own opinion. It's actually the Word of God. It's God's will expressed. Now, yes, God used men to do that, but think about this. The Word of God as it instructs us, if this was just human wisdom, How is it so cohesive when it was written by 40-plus different men and it was written over the course of about 1,500 years? Men aren't that good. (laughs) It's God's will and his word in his one story of salvation, his one plan for salvation laid out and revealed over the course of history. And if it's breathed out by God, if it's his will, it can be trusted. It can be trusted because he is not a failure. He will not fail us. Theologians define God's will sometimes as as God's law, or the Ten Commandments. The law tells us how we are supposed to live. It teaches us, as as Paul says, that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching. It shows us what right and wrong is. It expands upon that imperfect, yet very real aspect of our person called the conscience, right? tells us what we've done right. It tells us what we've done wrong. Paul says that this word is profitable for teaching people God's will for their life, for training them in righteousness or the right way to live. This is what young Timothy began to learn on the lap of his mom and his grandma. As good Jewish women, they would have known the Old Testament and they would have known then and have come to believe as that word had been proclaimed to them and revealed to them that that word pointed to Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior. And they would have taught Timothy this. They were fulfilling exactly what good Jewish women would do for their children. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, and, uh, verse 7, it says, You shall teach them, that is the words and commandments of God, diligently to your children, and talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And this, this also, by the way, was the heart of Luther as the Reformation advanced. How many of you have used the small catechism except in confirmation? Anybody used the catechism outside of confirmation before? How many of you know that Luther, and I can't remember what year, somebody will quote, John Langness will tell me after the service here today, what year Luther wrote the small catechism. But it was written not for confirmation class, it was written for heads of households. It was written for parents to teach their children the things of Scripture, the words of God, the the things of God. That is what we are to do as believers. That, That is what the Bible does. It instructs us. It teaches us. It teaches us about our sin and need for a Savior. 
So when we talk about the Bible this way, it's easy to think about it being a book of do's and don'ts. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not the things that we have to do. But when we dive deeply into God's law and take it all in, the, the sentiment that as we look at all of the things that we've done, it causes us to despair. And this is what ends up happening with Luther. The more he thought about righteousness needing to be achieved through what he did, the more he recognized that he hated God because he thought God was this taskmaster. And, and then we understand a little bit from verse 16 what the word is doing. As we recognize all the times we've broken God's law, we see the word is, is doing what, what the word is translated into, into English as reproof. It's reproving us. It's calling us out. It's standing there as this mirror showing us what we have done wrong. It calls us out for our sin. But not only does it reprove us, it says it corrects us. The word used here in the word correction is the word from which we get our word for things like orthodontist or orthopedics, or uh, orthodoxy, right? That word ortho, if you're an orthodontist, what do they do to your teeth? They make them straight, right? I never had one. I should probably look into it, right? Ortho means to make straight and right. So when we have veered off one way, the word says, uh, no, no, you've, you've done something right. It reproves us. And then it brings us into correction and into line with the truth of the gospel. It points us back to a Savior who perfectly obeyed in our place. Correcting our course, the word makes us wise for our salvation. It causes us to trust in the healing correction. It instructs us in the word of God, in the will of God. And finally, because this word anchors us in God's salvation and ongoing instruction, we also know that the word completes us. I was at a conference this week. What's the difference between the word complete and finish? Right? And there's been a debate. And the best way to describe this is a man who finds the right woman, he's complete. A man who finds the wrong woman, he's finished. Right? The word completes us. doesn't finish us. Although I will use that word later in just a second. (laughs) The word is all we need. The word is all we need because it's God's word, and God's words affect change. And we can trust that word to be a finished carpenter in our lives. I wish Pastor Franz was here and I'd make a finished joke right now. But as we immerse ourselves in that word, it continually performs the work of teaching us, convicting us, pointing us to Jesus and feeling our service to him. This means that we don't have to go on some sort of a quest to find truth and purpose in our lives. We don't have to absorb the so-called culture of self, uh, the culture of self-help, right? What we need is the Word of God. It is here. And Paul says that it completes us and it equips us. The words combine to illustrate one who has become qualified or proficient to perform some function. It, it, is, it means that it's to be full, or that the Word, those trained in that Word, are fully adequate, furnished completely. If we have the Word, the search for spiritual meaning and adequacy are over. We are ready. We are ready to serve. Many Christians are familiar with the words of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But we also uh, sometimes forget verse 10, when it says that there's a purpose for our lives now. It says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared in advance 
that we may walk in them. That word is the way that God molds us and he shapes us. We are God's workmanship. The word where we get our word poem is workmanship, right? God crafts us through the word of God as it's proclaimed. God uses his word to form us as individuals in service to him. That means that the work that God has laid out for you to do, that proclaiming this word to your children, you think this is overwhelming. I don't. Where do I even start with the catechism? It was written for children, right? Like, you, you, can, you can do this. That work that, that God has called you to is possible because it is through his word. It's his work in you and through you, through the word of God. Whatever, uh, whatever we're walking, whatever station of life, wherever we're at in life, God has good works that his word has made us fully adequate to perform. Though we don't always see that, though we don't always feel that, it's the promise that we see in 2 Timothy. Timothy, he went on to face exactly what Paul predicted he would face. Luther had a bounty out on his head for proclaiming salvation by grace through faith. We will face struggles, and I think we're going to see more struggles as we pursue uh, righteousness in our current culture. But what these men and what we can find is that the Word of God anchors us in truth. It proclaims the gospel. It guides the believer in life, and it completes God's people for service in his name. That's the Word that is ours. May God make us fruitful in using it. Amen. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you that these words are truth, that your word is sufficient for everything we need to walk in you. I ask in your mercy and in your grace that you would make us faithful in learning it, in hearing it, that you would use it for every function and purpose that you design and desire in each life here present. Uh, Lord, your word is, is versatile and it functions in varieties of ways for varieties of people in varieties of times but it is always the same. I pray that you would ground us in that word. In Jesus' name.